0: Hi church, my name is Leslie Sturm and the teaching text for today is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you i will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you let us pray father you are so faithful and so good may we comprehend the vastness of your love for us in this moment by your grace may we have ears to hear the ability to understand wisdom to apply and courage to obey all that we hear you speak to our hearts today Thank you that by your Spirit's work within us, you give us both the desire and the ability to do what pleases you. We consecrate ourselves to you today, and we trust that you will faithfully continue the work that you have started in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. My goodness. What a, what a huge joy. Lobby friends, you're my favorite today. Thank you for being back there. Uh, man, I'm so grateful to see all of you. It's such a gift to get to be together in person. I don't know if in coming today that you're doing well, or maybe you feel like many of us like you've been just kind of limping through life or limping through the last couple of months. I don't know if in coming here today you feel like you're finally among friends. My buddy Austin, wherever he is, texted me last night and he said, man, it's going to be so good to be with the family again. And maybe you're here and your blood pressure is just up for a variety of reasons, (laughs) one of them being COVID, one of them being just being in a new social dynamics, and that may be you. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently and totally disagree with us, but I'm so delighted to see you. And I want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are welcome And you are wanted in our community, and it thrills my heart to be looking at your eyes and not the iris of a camera one more time. In the 6th or 7th century before Jesus, there was a prophet named Jeremiah who was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because he had a hard word to deliver to God's people, and it tore him up inside. They said God's words were like fire in his bones. He had to let it out, but it was laborious. It was difficult for him to do that. The people of Judah, though they didn't understand it, were standing perilously close to the edge of disaster. And Jeremiah was calling them, return, return to the Lord, repent of your sin, and we might like put this off, but the people wouldn't listen. And the people of Judah were at a fork in the road that they couldn't fully appreciate it. On the one hand, they could take the popular path of trying to preserve power and cultural significance. They were just clinging to it as tightly as they could. Unfortunately, if they held on to it, they were actually going to lose it. But there was another option, another way of posturing themselves before God that if they chose it could lead to their preservation and even to their regeneration, And in Jeremiah 6.16, the prophet says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you'll find rest for your souls. The alternate adoption for the people of Judah and the one that we've been talking about for the first six weeks or so of this year is what we're calling the ancient path. And the ancient path is, of course, not a literal road. It's a manner of being in the world that hungers and thirsts for God's wisdom above all else in a Proverbs 2 kind of way, seeking after it like like a hidden treasure. It's it's a way of, of expressing a deep desire to live aligned with the truth above all else, no matter the cost. It's an embrace of the life of faith as a life that's inherently challenging. It's a pilgrimage. It's a process. It's a baptism in the refiner's fire. The ancient path is not intuitive. It's something that you have to seek out. It's something that you have to ask for and not something that you can teach yourself. Now, I've been preaching my guts out to this camera for the first six weeks of the year. And if you have missed these messages, they're really important. I hope that you'll go back and listen to them and they build on each other. We started out as, as we're going through the book of Genesis by saying that the prerequisite for journeying down the ancient path is confessing and embracing the reality that God is God and we are not, which feels rather self-evident, but it's, it's the beginning of the path to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Recognizing that God is God and we are not, we also embrace that God, because God is the one who authored existence, we are not appropriately positioned to edit it to change the ends for which humanity exists. And so to live in alignment with this reality, that God is God and we are not, is to live in alignment with reality itself. And because God is God and we are not, we talked about this last week, we are not positioned to define right and wrong for ourselves. God alone maintains that sovereign position to define right from wrong, truth from falsehood, uh, define for us what is truly pure and beautiful in this life. As we saw in Genesis chapter 3, humanity's first sin, the core of the initial human rebellion, was attempting to usurp God's authority by defining right and wrong for themselves. But we said that a person who in humility submits to God's authority and renounces any claim of defining right and wrong for themselves and who actively resolves to live aligned with God's truth is a person who can truly be described as a follower of Christ. Say, so, said, Lord, my whole life is yours and all of it I want to live surrendered to you and in submission to you. A person, on the other hand, who either actively or passively regards the teaching of Scripture as, as one option to consider among many— who treats God as a consultant but not, doesn't recognize Jesus Christ as Lord, can more accurately be described as an admirer of Jesus. And I think all of us can admit, myself included, that more often than we would like, we find ourselves to be admirers and not followers of Jesus. But our resolution as a community and seeking to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel is to be truly followers of Jesus and not just fans or admirers. Now, as I said last week, and I was not attempting to fear in any way, I believe that the days are coming when those who truly aspire to be followers of Jesus are going to more acutely feel the cost of following. Whereas it was a given in some parts of American history to be a follower of Jesus, that is no longer the case. We are living in post-Christian America. And I also think it's going to be the case that those right now who are mere admirers of Jesus or those who are nominal or cultural Christians— are going to be kind of fall away or being pruned away and all of that I think is actually a really great thing. Jesus said he prunes, he disciplines those he loves, he cuts off dead branches so that we can bear more fruit and so my hope is that as a community and for all the church of Jesus Christ around the world that God would actively engage us as a gardener and prune away in us what's dead and what's no longer leading to fruit so that we can more faithfully follow him together. And so this makes me incredibly hopeful about our future, to get future together, even if the cultural conditions become more hostile. So we've been teasing out the, the initial implications of what it means to be a community of people going down the ancient path. We're playing with these ideas, and we see how, uh, with these two paths, the, the popular path and the ancient path, we see that the longer they go on, we're finding that they diverge. That they're moving away from one another. See, because a person who affirms that God is God and we are not, and a person who renounces claims to define right and wrong for themselves is one who immediately encounters newly defined social dynamics. They may even find themselves in a position of, of having some social tension and standing apart from the crowd. I'm using Genesis as the place that we're imaginatively wandering through the components of the ancient path. And today, Leslie read for us this passage from Genesis chapter 12, which is a touchstone passage for people certainly who are followers of Jesus, but also like the Jewish faith. This is a highly consequential passage of Scripture with the call of Abram. And in Genesis 11 and 12, we're introduced to this guy, Abram, who is effectively a nomad. There's a lot that we do not know about his story. Uh, in Genesis 11, we hear the story of how Abram and his family leave this place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is probably in modern-day Iraq, and they make this massive journey to go to a place called Haran, which is in eastern, the eastern part of modern-day Turkey. And it's there in Haran uh, that, that he receives a call from this god now, I, as I was reading the story of Abram imaginatively, I was, certainly he's a nomad literally, but I was thinking of, of Abram as a kind of nomad spiritually. He was open-minded and his eyes were open and he was, still hadn't found what he was looking for. And there in Haran, this God appears to Abram and he gives a, a rather shocking command with almost no introduction. God appears and said, I want you to leave behind your country that is your geographical identity. I want you to leave behind your people, your cultural identity, and leave behind your father's household, that is your familial identity, and I'm going to do something completely different with you. God says, go to this land I'm going to show you. I'm giving you a new geographical identity, There, I'm going to make you into a new nation, giving you a new cultural identity, and I'm going to birth from you a new family under the fatherhood of God, giving you a new familial and religious identity. And through this family, God says, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. I want you to separate, but you're separating for the purpose of blessing all the families of the earth. Leave everything that you've known behind, and through your seed, I'm going to change the world. Now if God appears to you and gives you that kind of command to leave everything behind, what would you do? Published in the late 1500s, the Nuremberg Chronicles detail the state of Europe following the Black Plague. And following the bubonic plague, uh, which I don't know that may feel a little bit close to home uh, Europe was stuck. There hadn't been meaningful breakthroughs in art, science, mathematics, architecture, astronomy. The church was dead. And then Columbus gets on a boat. And all the atrocities of Columbus aside, we discover that the world is bigger than we first realized. Within 50 years, Michelangelo is carving David. Martin Luther is pounding the 95 Theses onto the Wittenberg Chapel, and Europe finds itself in the middle of the Renaissance. Psychologist and rabbi Edwin Friedman, who I always call my favorite mad scientist, posits that Columbus' discovery and the dawn of the Renaissance were intimately linked. And he makes the case that groups of people are deeply emotionally interrelated. And they operate uh, large groups of people like family systems. So families, biological families, are deeply related, interrelated emotionally. Churches operate in many ways like a family system, but the same can be said of a city or even of a nation or even of things like Congress. That these family systems uh, are deeply emotionally interrelated. And Friedman goes on to say that when chronic anxiety takes root in a group of people, what happens is that they can stop dreaming. They lose their ability to imagine a brighter future. And when they stop dreaming and they stop imagining imagining a different future, it's like they've hopped on a treadmill and they're running as fast as they can, but they're aghast and surprised that they're no longer making any progress. They get stuck. When people stop dreaming and envisioning a future and their thinking gets limited, chronic anxiety takes root, they get stuck. And stuckness can show up in a marriage, it can show up in a school board, it can show up in a basketball team, it can show up in Congress, and this is what had happened in Europe. When this happens, when a group of people, a family system, gets stuck together, the way forward requires someone to get enough emotional Distance from the rest of the group, no longer paralyzed by that vortex of anxiety that they can envision and imagine a way out, and then they start taking steps that direction. When you are a part of a broken family system and you find that like suddenly someone shows up with vision, vision is not just like the ideas of something that we could do. Vision is that emotional capacity Somebody has enough distance from the anxiety of the group that they can help everyone begin to unburden and that they might begin to follow them. And when that happens, it's like everyone's stuck in a concrete room and one person's got a sledgehammer and is beginning to make a way out where everyone else can follow. An emotional barrier, a a way that chronic anxiety took place in athletics, uh, had to do with uh, track For years and years, people thought it was physically impossible to run a mile in under four minutes until Roger Bannister did it, and then the next year, four other people followed suit. He broke an imaginative barrier, and other people began to let go of the lie that it was impossible, and they proved it for themselves. The ability to separate oneself From the chronic anxiety and imaginative limitations of a group of people or a family system is what Friedman calls differentiation. You're going to want to write that word down, differentiation. According to Friedman, a person who is differentiated is one who has clarity about his or her goals and values. This is so so hard to get your brain around at first. Stick with me a person who is differentiated, has clarity about his or her goals and values, who has found a way to derive their emotional well-being from somewhere other than the emotional well-being of the group, thus offering the group a calm and non-anxious imaginative presence. The paradox is that they have emotionally separated from the group while remaining connected to others. And it's this emotional separation while remaining connection that enables them to be an agent of change. You know the old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? That is a family that is not emotionally differentiated. A differentiated person is someone who has found a way to be happy while with mama, even while mama's not happy herself. Now, if a person is bothered by the chronic anxiety of a group and decides to merely cut themselves off from the group or the family or the family system, they've given up the opportunity to be an influence. That's just plain disconnection. And a disconnected person bothered by mama's unhappiness just, sto- just stops talking to mama, and that's not a good thing. Talk to your mom. On the other hand, If a person is overly connected to the family system, finding all of their emotional well-being based on how everyone else is doing, they run the risk of losing their sense of self and they merge with the group. So on the one hand, you're too disconnected. On the other hand, you're too connected. The person who merges and is too connected lets the anxiety and the lack of imagination of others dictate the terms for their well-being. This person can only be happy if mama is happy. Differentiation means you're learning to be emotionally separate. That is, doesn't mean being mean or cold, but deriving your sense of well-being from elsewhere while remaining connected to others. And as we're learning how to do this, it may seem initially cold or distant, but we find that that sense of separation while remaining connected is ultimately for the benefit of others. The emotional separation while remaining connected is what enables us to be a source of calm or vision. Now last week, I, if you heard the sermon, I was effectively discussing the manner in which we are related to Jesus. Is our, is our posturing toward Jesus one who is a true follower, who's, who's, who's like, we're taking our orders at whatever he says, that's submitting to the Lordship of Christ. We a follower of Jesus, or we more like an admirer of Jesus who will like, yeah, we'll think about what you have to say and we may get to it if it feels right for us. In the message today, I'm effectively addressing our posture, not in relating to Jesus, but having made resolved to be a follower of Jesus, our posture in relating to the world, either disconnecting, merging, or differentiating. Now, all throughout church history, the church has struggled in many ways to get our relationship with the world just right. Uh, Often we've waffled between disconnecting from culture or merging with culture. And for me, growing up as a kid in the church in the early 90s, we sang a lot of songs about the idea of holiness or being set apart. Holiness, holiness. Yeah. Christian culture in the 90s, Really ran with this idea. Christian marketers in the 90s ran with this in some weird and often lame kind of ways. Well-intentioned, but it was weird. Christian marketers tried to create a Christian alternative to literally everything. Now, remember, this is the 90s. Do you like the bid, the mighty, mighty boss tones? Well, try the supertones, the Christian version of it. Do you like Spice Girls? Try Point of Grace. slightly different, you know. <laughs> Do you like In Sync? Try For Him, okay? Like shirts from Abercrombie and Fitch? Well, how about wearing one that says "A Breadcrumb and Fish"? I owned that shirt. <laughs> like Mentos? Try Testaments, only available at Mardell. Oh, that's funny. This continued into the 2000s. Like YouTube, try GodTube. Like Netflix, how about PureFlix? All of this was effectively, and you know, tons of good intentions. Good things came from it. I actually really liked the Supertones, and they got a couple songs that are still all right. But this was effectively a strategy of disconnecting from mainstream culture, and as I said, not altogether bad. A ton of kids who grew up in this kind of uh, overcorrecting Christian subculture actively or passively, as they came of age, threw themselves headlong into, like the non-Christian version of all these things, not appreciating the sanitized version, many overcorrected by consuming mu- music and movies and books and other cultural artifacts, without giving too much thought to the manner in which it was shaping their hearts and imaginations for the gospel. They became overly acculturated and merged with culture, doing what everybody else did without apology, and that was not and is not without effect. But what does it look like as people who are resolving to journey down the ancient path, what does it look like to resist disconnection from culture and avoid overcorrection by merging with popular culture? Well, to figure that out, we have to be people who learn what it means to differentiate, to be like really and truly set apart, being shaped by the way of Jesus, deriving our emotional, spiritual, holistic well-being from him, while at the same time maintaining a connection to the world so that we can be a healthy, modifying presence, like white blood cells or like, like the body's immune system. We are disconnected, we are separate in the sense that we're learning from Jesus how to be like Him in the world. We're on a different trajectory than everyone else, but we're also maintaining this connection so that our discipleship, our formation, can be for the benefit of others. Now, in January of last year, we launched out of our Mother Church of Asbury, and we joined the Anglican Church of North America— I'm going to venture a guess that 99.5% of the people in this room have no idea what that means. And we're slow playing, learning together what it means that we have joined uh, this tribe. But one of the great joys of being a part of this tribe for me is we joined a diocese or like a, a grouping of churches within the Anglican Church of North America called Churches for the Sake of Others. Or you may hear it abbreviated C4SO from time to time. And one of the great joys of the last year for me is getting to serve under this, my bishop, whose name is Todd Hunter, who is easily the most brilliant person I've ever met and the most godly, like, Christ-like person I've ever met. And Bishop Todd always talks about that the work of discipling people that we do in the local church is never just for the good of those being discipled. That you know, the goal is is not just passing off Bible knowledge for ourselves, though I think you all should study your Bibles. And the goal is certainly not just ticking off the prayer box, but I certainly think we should all pray. The goal is certainly not making life less difficult for those who resolve to follow Jesus. Like, if anything, I think following Jesus makes life much more difficult. But the byproduct of all that we do, the work of formation that we do by the Spirit in community, is ultimately for the benefit of those who are not yet in our community. Discipleship and following Jesus should help us more faithfully love our neighbors, serve our city, and share the love of Jesus Christ with the world. Now, deciding not to totally disconnect from the world and, or merge with the world puts us in a place of constant Tension. We've embraced that we're set apart, we're different, we're learning the way of Jesus, but we're doing it in the context of our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our city, in our country. We're doing all of this work of formation surrounded by people who do not share our values and are not rowing in the same direction as us. It would be much easier to pick one or the other it would be much easier either to decide to disconnect from others and start a holiness club or some kind of neo-monastic sect or to give up the quest altogether and just to like, like be like everyone else, just assimilate into American culture. But differentiating from the world by learning the way of Jesus while maintaining a connection to the world means, in my opinion, that apart from the kingdom of God, we exist almost constantly in no man's land feeling like nomads and wanderers and people who can't quite find our fit apart from the kingdom. And until the kingdom comes in fullness, true followers of Jesus probably feel like misfits almost everywhere. Christians and true followers of Jesus should not feel like they fit perfectly in the Democratic Party. Christians and followers of Jesus should not feel that they fit perfectly in the Republican Party. Followers of Jesus who are learning to do as Abram did, leaving behind their geographical identity and cultural identity and familial identity and finding a new identity in the pilgrimage of the ancient path are marching to the beat of a different drummer, and nobody plays quite the same rhythm as him. In the process of learning to differentiate, to be separate while remaining connected, we need to get used to reminding one another, we're different. We're Christians. And at the same time, we need to, get to, we need to get used to reminding one another that what we do and who we are is ultimately for the sake and the benefit of others. To refuse to, to disconnect from culture or overly merge with culture and to embrace this kind of liminal, in-between life requires tremendous emotional, spiritual, relational fortitude. It requires the caliber of secret life with God like we talked about last year in the Sermon on the Mount. It also requires a community of people who are wholly committed to supporting one another in the power of the Spirit as we pursue this task. It also requires models of people who are learning to do it really well. One of the greatest examples in our time of men and women who are learning to differentiate is celibate gay Christians. On the one hand, you're estranged and maligned from the LGBTQ community because you've affirmed biblical teaching. On the other hand, most evangelical churches don't know what to do with a person who publicly owns that they're gay, that they're attracted to people of the same gender, but are striving to live faithfully according to the church's teachings of fidelity in Christian marriage or celibacy in singleness. And men and women like this are a gift to the church because they remind us that following in the way of Jesus means we are never quite at home in popular culture. And that following Jesus always means carrying one's cross. I'm talking about people like Peter Volk and Eve Tushnet and Wesley Hill. Such people compel the church through their example to courageously call one another to sacrificial faithfulness, showing us a love beyond self-serving eros toward a love that exists for the benefit of others. So we prepare to receive Holy Communion today, and oh, I'm so happy about that. I'm so, oh, I just want to cry. I want to invite you to consider in this space where the Lord has tenderized our hearts and seeing one another and hearing one another and singing together and reflecting on the scripture. I want to ask you to consider your posture toward the world. On the spectrum of disconnecting to merging with culture, where are you? You may be a person who lives in a Christian ghetto. You do all the Bible studies, you hang with all your Christian friends, but you're so connect, disconnected from the rest of the world that you never offer what God has given you to anybody else. Rather than a river flowing out, you are a dam piling up. How's the Holy Spirit inviting you to reach out to others, to befriend, to put yourself in the middle of other people's lives, especially those who don't know Jesus? Or maybe you're, you're dipping your toes into the water of the way of Jesus, but you are overly merged with the world. If an outsider studied your life, there would be no discernible difference between your life and the life of your neighbors, and especially those who don't know Jesus. Your invitation, then your call, is to more faithfully, to more fully embrace the way of Jesus, to accept that you are different. It might mean gearing up to face ridicule or misunderstanding. But the way of Jesus requires of all of us a willingness to be misunderstood. And in our journey down the ancient path, as the author of Hebrews says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, the most misunderstood and differentiated human being who ever lived. Jesus, the perennial misfit, holy and separate from the world, but who gave his life for the life of the world. As we receive communion this morning and we, you see the cross behind me, I want you to imagine Jesus on the cross. Where does he fit? He's the Son of God and he's the Son of Man. He's suspended between heaven and earth on the cross as our high priest, advocating for us to the Father and commending the love of the Father to the world that has rejected him. Inviting us to join him in this misfit community to be a community set apart, salty and shining brightly and beckoning others to come home to the family of God. Because of what he has done for us and how he continues to contend for us, and in our journey down the ancient path, we need to remind one another we're different, we're Christians, and what we do and who we are is for the sake of others. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need your help. We need your help, Jesus. Lord, would you forgive us for ways in which we have just ignored the world that you love? Forgive us, Jesus, for for living in our Christian ghettos. Would you forgive us, Jesus, for being so merged from the world that there's no discernible difference between us and anybody else? But to learn to be truly differentiated, disconnected while attached, is something that we can't do apart from your Spirit. So Lord, as we come today with empty hands, we acknowledge our impotence and our inability to obey your commands apart from your empowering Spirit. So pour out your spirit on us gathered here. Pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us so much more than just that, but may they be for us the means by which we experience the renewing, regenerating life of God. Come Holy Spirit. Come Lord Jesus.